I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of October 3rd, 2016. It's another guest fest on this week's show. First, will USA, USA, Europe, you suck. We'll talk about the Americans reclaiming golf's Ryder Cup with Golf Digest contributor Shane Ryan, who was in Minnesota for the Jets and Sharks rumble in slacks. Then it's on to baseball, the end of the regular season, the start of the playoffs, David Ortiz's smorgasbord of farewell gifts. Emma Spann, the baseball editor at Sports Illustrated, will join us for that conversation. Finally, we'll discuss a crazy weekend in college football with Chuck Culpepper of the Washington Post, who performed a crazy act of journalistic daring do in order to cover it. Slate executive editor Josh Levine is off again this week. I'm in Washington. Joining me from Slate headquarters in Brooklyn is Mike Pesca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. Hey, Mike. Hi, Chuck Culpepper. That's a good football name. Good military name, too. I'm Chuck Culpepper. And I approve this message. It's an appropriate pairing of uh, of writer and subject. Yeah. If he was Charles Culpepper the third, Charles Cole. No, Charles Culpepper uh, is the third Duke of Waynesport or something like that. Yeah, where he's yeah. covering like the IRS. Let's do some whimsy watch, Mike. Our yeah. weekly look at whimsical moments in the, the non-whimsical look at NFL. That which is whimsical. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What do you got? I got. Let's talk about both coaches in the Bills Patriot game. Uh, Rex Ryan sources inside Gillette said Jacoby Brissett would be playing. He said he had sources. Then he backed off. Then he said maybe it did. Uh, noted Trump endorser Rex Ryan. Remember, Trump tweeted, if you hear something from a source, it's not true. There are no sources. But Ryan attempting to get under the skin of Bill Belichick. So on the other side of the field, there was uh, Bill Belichick taking out his uh, frustrations on the Microsoft Surface. This is the iPad thing that is uh, actually not an iPad. Maybe it was an iPad. It would work. But his Surface was not working, or at least the, uh, the Patriots offense was not working. Just smash the hell out of his Microsoft Surface. He was not doing well. In fact, it was the first time the Patriots were shut out at home since, I don't know, since they played in Boston or something. But uh, yeah, he was just, he just took it to task. Not as good as the old school black and white photographs. You got one? 
Well, I, th- I want to go back because the other the other Rex Ryan whimsical moment, probably the most whimsical moment, was when he got on the weekly conference call with Patriots players. Julian Edelman was on and Rex Ryan got on and pretended he was a reporter for the Buffalo News. And he said he was Walt Patulski of the Buffalo News. Patulski was a, a number one draft pick, I think, in 1972. And, and Edelman was supposed to know that. And Edelman, well, who knows? You know, he kind of played along, but I don't think that Julian Edelman knew who Walt Patulski was. Perhaps he played along in the conference call. He did not play along in the game. Here are Julian Edelman's stats. Uh, One catch for 16 yards. Also, one rush for one yard. Mm, Good game. They got shut out. Balanced. Balanced offense out of Edelman. Yeah. Yeah. On our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. We'll take a look at Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal's anti-Michigan tirade last week, which raised hackles inside the offices of the Wall Street Journal. A lot of Michigan people there. A lot of hackles. A lot of hackles. And uh, we'll spin off that and talk about hated fan bases and why people hate them. Uh To listen to this segment and to get bonus segments on future episodes of Hang Up and Listen, Join Slate Plus at slate.com slash hangup. Plus, this month we are offering a very special 30% off an annual membership. Sign up, get a full year of Slate Plus for just $35 at slate.com slash hangup plus. In their ugly 90s looking shirts and pants, which were labeled USA in case, I don't know, in case they were going to international golf team summer camp or something, the United States Ryder Cup golf team was clearly outpointed in the fashion department by their rivals from Europe. Totally disagree, totally disagree. Let me finish. Go on. We're dressed in tasteful monochromatic blues and grays. Oh, God. Tasteful equals afraid of appearing interesting. But go ahead. It was a pewter. Go ahead. The Americans played better than they dressed turning a three-point lead entering Sunday's final singles matches into a 17-11 route at Hazeltine National Golf Club in Chaska, Minnesota. It was the first American win since 2008 in golf's weirdly nationalistic and brotastic biennial event. Joining us now is Shane Ryan, contributor to Golf Digest and the author of Slaying the Tiger, A Year Inside the Ropes on the new PGA Tour. Shane was there. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, before we get to the fun stuff about America's boorish fans, let's talk about the tournament <laughs> itself. I think it's hard to measure the why in the Ryder Cup. There's some strategy um, for some events on the first two days, but it's not like the golfers are you know hitting the ball to each other. Why did the Americans win? Is it just that these guys happen to play better golf this weekend? Yeah, you know, and that's that's really the fun thing about the Ryder Cup because I suspect deep down that it really does just come down to who plays better. But there is so much analysis and over analysis beforehand. Uh, a great example is this week that you know they released the first pairings for the Friday foursomes matches on Thursday night, and you know top to bottom the U.S. has a better lineup. But I thought Darren Clark, the European captain did an excellent job giving them a, a paper advantage. And I wrote this whole piece for golf digest about, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but he kind of out captained Davis love on Thursday night. And that could be big. Um, and then what actually happened is the Americans went out and won all four matches for the first time since 1975. <laughs> so I had a nice, like historically bad prediction just right off the bat. Um, so yeah, it, it is. There's like, it's so much fun to uh, dissect the captains and what they're doing. And, at Glen Eagles in 2014, you know, the, the wisdom afterward was that Paul McGinley was an amazing captain and Tom Watson was kind of a disaster. Um, but I think, you know, this week, I think both captains did it pretty okay. And I think it was just, yeah, the Americans playing under that crazy home crowd and they, and they just really did a better job. There is an aspect to the Ryder Cup that I really, really like. And you are reminded that golf doesn't always have to be played uh, in the way in the tournament format, you know, stroke play. There is the foursomes and there is the four ball. And I was wondering, so they're a little bit different. One is the each duo alternates shots, but the other is you take the best shot. And I was wondering how much strategy goes into that because I would, you can't do this on every hole, but you could kind of a fallback plan or a fail safe plan. One guy could rip it towards the hole and maybe if the course were more difficult, that would uh, pay off and the other guy could kind of lay up and I don't know. It just seems like there's, it's a way of thinking about golf differently than is normally thought about. And that's one of the aspects of the Ryder cup that I like. And that's where the, that's where the team captain comes in, right? 
It's true. It's true. And yeah, and you look at especially alternate shot, uh, the foursomes format. They no matter what happens on the hole, the, uh, you know they switch tee shots. So you also have to look at okay, what are the par fives on the course? Are there more par fives on even holes or odd holes? And if there's more on odd holes, you want your long hitter hitting on those. Uh, and so it does. Yeah, it becomes an interesting strategy. And then, but then you had like Rory and Thomas Peters, who are probably the best pairs team this week, and they just flipped a coin before before their match to see who would go first on the first <laughs> hole. So like the Americans were obsessing about okay, which hole is which guy going to play on, and et cetera. And even for partnerships, it's like oh okay, well uh, bubble uh, or you know uh, Dustin Johnson hits this far, and on these holes that would leave about a hundred and eighty approach shot. Who's our best guy uh, by the analytics and by the stats at hitting 180 yard approach shots? And they they really went deep into the stats to prepare for that. And you know I think that's it's interesting and you can definitely you can read too much into it, but I think it did pay off a little bit. We played much better in the pairs matches than we have in years, which Europe always seems to dominate. The players get emotional and the crowd revs players up, but I would think that golf is the sport where not only does that help the least, it could interfere the most. Let's put it this way. Hypothetical, crowd cheering just as strong for the Europeans. How much of an advantage would that be to them? Well, yeah. So going to the first part of what you said, you know, Rory McIlroy was a great example this week where he was the one European who really took all the abuse from the crowd. And some some of it was pretty lewd, but yeah, that can also be a little overblown because they're bringing 60,000 people in there and there's just no way to police every single individual. Uh, but, you know, he took it very personally and he was yelling back at them. He was, uh, you know, you guys probably saw in his Sunday singles match, he was shouting and putting his hand to his ear after a long birdie putt saying, I can't hear you and bowing to them on Saturday when he won his match. And yeah. it actually it actually did get to a thing where I think you're right. I mean, this is not football where getting amped up on every single play is is the best thing. And so on Saturday afternoon and on Sunday, he sort of reached this emotional peak and then on the back nine really didn't play well. And yeah. I thought and he actually admitted that, you know, maybe escalating things with the crowd, I think once you sort of uh, poke the bear of 60,000 people, eventually they're going to win and you're and you're going to run out of mental energy because they're not well, I would I would say it's just doing something he's never done before. I mean, if there's a uh, an NFL player, an NBA player, who likes to engage with the crowd and do the shush shine a, a shush sign after a touchdown, that's fine. It's part of the sport. He's probably done it a dozen times. But this is Rory. It doesn't matter how he was acting. He was acting just in a way different from he acts. And the, since the way he usually acts is one of the best in golf, why deviate from that? So I don't know if they got in his head. It just seemed like he threw his own rhythm off. Yeah, to a certain degree he did, but I think what happened after after the 4-0 start by the Americans, I think there really was this sense of, uh, you know, the Europeans have been so good at the Ryder Cup, and they kind of had this sense of pride, like, we really need to do something different, and we can't just roll over and die here. And I think he took it upon himself to be the emotional leader. And, it, you know, it worked to a certain extent. He won his next three matches. So before Sunday, he was 3-1 and one and playing with all kinds of passion, and getting everybody really pissed off at him and, and just playing extremely well. Uh, and I just think there was a limit to it. I think it was also his bad luck. He happened to play against Patrick Reed, who is basically unbeatable in the Ryder Cup on Sunday. And Patrick Reed also was amped up and even more than Rory. I mean, it was total tit for tat and it was really entertaining to watch when McElroy sank a putt from 60 feet on the eighth hole. That's when he went nuts and cupped his cupped his hand to his ear. Um, and screamed at the crowd, Reed came back and made his birdie putt from 20 feet, and he wagged his finger at Rory like Dikembe Mutombo. And then they immediately sort of smiled and tapped fists and, and patted each other on the back. So it was actually great sports theater. I mean, it was handled exactly the right way. Um, but the crowd part of it feels like this is where the home field advantage comes in here. Um, the PGA had to issue a statement urging the crowd or threatening the crowd if they got out of line. I mean, some of the things that fans did say were totally over the top. Your your colleague at Golf Digest, John Duggan, wrote a piece uh, where he, I think, deserves some credit for reporting what actually the fans said to Rory on Saturday that led Rory to try to get the fan kicked out. He screamed, suck a dick, Rory. 
Um, yeah, Ian yeah. Poulter asked for a kid that was holding a sign saying PJ Willett killed Harambe to get kicked out. Uh, <laughs> Demonstrably untrue. Demonstrably. <laughs> fans were screaming, get in the bunker when Europeans hit the shot or go, go, go when a putt was rolling off the green. Um, the, but the, the, in terms of the gamesmanship and the home field advantage, they set this course up to encourage birdies. They made it easy. The pin positions were easy. The players were complaining yeah. about it. And it does seem like the PGA wanted an easy course because fans, particularly not total golf fans would get revved up at seeing a lot of birdies. Yeah, it's true. And I, you know, Justin Rose was one person who complained about that after because he got, uh, you know, late in his match, he got down to Ricky Fowler and they came to the last three holes and they're just not difficult, you know? <laughs> it's just like he wanted the holes to be difficult so that he could make a spectacular shot and have a chance to win these holes back. Whereas if you look at the, you know, the par 317th on, on Sunday, the pin was just dead in the middle. It's a very easy, you know, short iron shot for these guys. And on 18, one good drive and you have a wedge into the hole. So, yeah, it becomes difficult to get an advantage over everyone. Um but yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny with the with the fans. I mean, John Huggin is Scottish and he's very he's very partisan. Part of me thinks again, it's just a little overblown. It's yeah, people definitely went over the line, but you know, you guys have been to football games or basketball games. It's nowhere near the kind of abuse they take there. And again, it's the PJ of America is trying to get like 60,000 people in on the grounds and you know, they're drinking sometimes from 7 o'clock in the morning when these things start. There's just no way that you're ever going to police that. I yeah. mean, there's always going to be one or yeah. two individuals. You know, and by and large, you know, if somebody when somebody said that to Rory, they got him kicked out um, on the final day in singles. Uh, Rory was about to take his shot on the 16th hole, and someone screamed out and made him take a step back. And you know, all the fans were booing and actually took it upon themselves to you know point out the guy who did it, and he got kicked out too. Mm-hmm. So it's like you and know. By the way, that was the guy who killed Harambe. He, absolutely. Yeah. It was later proven that <laughs> yes. he didn't build the gorilla. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you know, it's, you know, some American fans are stupid, but I think it's, it's easy to paint with a broad brush and say, Oh, these boorish Americans are, you know, terrible fans when actually the, the vast majority of them were just having fun and, and, you know, treating it like a team event, which it is. And which these guys are not used to because this is it. This and the President's Cup are just the only two team events in golf. Well, I is would it- also say that, first of all, it wasn't only the drinking. They're wearing hockey jerseys. And any time you clad a bunch of people in hockey jerseys, they're going to be <laughs> behave loudish. But I also think there was like this play acting aspect to it because I would bet that half of these fans, their favorite golfers, Rory, you know, and they definitely all like guys like Rory better than or Sergio Garcia better than half the Americans you know you don't just pick a golfer that you like because he's your countryman so I think that it was not I don't know how many people really like why would Rory McIlroy be the kind of guy that golfers hate uh, golf fans hate so I think it was like I think yeah I think they were just doing like a WWE play acting and I generally think that I don't know how uh, you tell me if any of the were any of the players you know the European players beside themselves and really upset I mean I know that Rory, you know, definitely played with emotion, but I don't know. I didn't think that there was an ugly side to this necessarily as much as it was, you know, just uh, showmanship. Exactly. You know, and and watch, I was there watching that Reed McIlroy match, which by the time they got to the eighth hole with the putts you talked about, there was a sense there, like this could be the greatest Ryder Cup match ever. Um, And, but yeah, they, they had celebrations on the, like the four holes before that where, you know, uh, Rory Storb, uh, stole Patrick Reed's shushing motion and Reed then stole his bow. And then they're wagging their fingers at each other and just egging on the crowd. And it really didn't seem, it seemed like, didn't seem that hostile. It did seem like a wrestling thing. Like it right. seemed like they were heels just building it up. Uh, and it was so funny after the eighth hole because it was so tense. Uh, and there was so much sort of mutual, like fake hatred or whatever it was that they shook hands and they walked off kind of arm in arm. As if agreeing, like, you know, gosh, we need to de-escalate this because there's no way we can keep this kind of negative emotion going for eight holes. Yeah. Um, and then the quality of play dropped off. But the second part of your question, you know, was there anybody really going nuts on the European side? Not really. You know, their, their post-match press conference, and by the way, the Europeans just consistently have better personalities, better senses of humor, more perspective. I, I would say even among American journalists, 70% of us were sort of secretly hoping that they would win. But, you know, Lee Westwood uh, was asked about the fans and, you know, his comment was like, well, you know, 
on a nice note, uh, somebody called me a turd, which I haven't been called since I was 12 years old. So <laughs> it, it made me feel young again. Uh, and, you know, and they just kind of, uh, and Sergio, they asked him and, uh, he took a long pause and he said, well, uh, I definitely know I've never won a major. <laughs> and so <laughs> that was excellent. That's the big thing. Yeah. Yeah. That they, was brought really the house, great. they brought the house down and the best yeah. answer of all, it wasn't about the fans, but Danny Willett, um, I don't know if you guys heard the whole controversy about his brother writing this crazy anti-American screed mm-hmm. in the lead up to it. And so someone asked, you know, between that and between your own three record, um, you know, how would you describe your Ryder Cup experience? And he just said, shit. Uh, and then everyone laughed. Everyone laughed and he paused and he said, oh, do you want me to elaborate? It was really shit. <laughs> well, ultimately, the the differences that used to characterize players from the United States and players from the rest of the world don't exist. Brian Costa in the Wall Street Journal had a good piece about this last week. You know, half these guys live in Florida in the same gated community. I mean, they mostly play on the tour in the United States. There's no real difference in training or equipment the way there was in the 70s or 80s. So this really is a an event that is terrific at ginning up a sort of, as Mike was pointing out, kind of a false sense of nationalism or continentalism. Yeah, it is. And, you know, there, there are actually a lot of people theorizing, some of the more intellectual writers, and it kind of crossed my mind, too, that, okay, like, if we look at this one, uh, it was a little bit more rough, and, a, you know, a few more people crossed the line than Medina uh, in the 2012 Ryder Cup, the last one in America. And is it because of, you know, not to reduce it just to Trump, but is, it there, is there a sense that uh, this kind of crass American nationalism is more acceptable now for years. And is that motivating people to say and do things uh, in ways they wouldn't have before? And, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion that that was just sort of like mumbo jumbo, like cultural theory that actually isn't true. Um, just some kind of like weird behavioral pseudoscience. But yeah, I think, you know, it's, it is, it, these guys are going to be loved the next time they're out in the PGA tour. Everybody loves Rory. They're going to start to love, you know, Danny Willett because you know he won the Masters this year, and I think he's going to be a great player. Thomas Peters had an incredible Ryder Cup. He, you know, he could be a number one golfer within a couple of years. Yeah, they're all they're all going to be fan favorites again. So it's just this little island of nationalism and, and team sport kind of rooting uh, in a sea of golf, which is you know it goes right back to normal gentleman sport, and everybody's pretty much nice to everybody. Well, the next Ryder Cup that'll be hosted in the United States is going to be at Bethpage on Long Island. So you got those New York fans. I'm sure it'll be ugly. Shane Ryan is a contributor to Golf Digest and other publications, and he's the author of Slaying the Tiger, A Year Inside the Ropes on the new PGA Tour. Shane, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, guys. It was fun. And Shane, don't put yourself in the category of anything other than the intellectual writers. I, I noticed you said that yeah. some of the more intellectual writers. No, Shane, you are an intellectual writer. I really appreciate that. You Thank you. <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Baseball's regular season ended with a whimper as a proponent of ultimate zone chaos. That's UZC to all you advanced metrists. I was rooting for a four-way tie for the wild card in the American League and a three-way tie in the National that would have been resolved with jousting and live animal sacrifice. Instead, the teams that had to win to get in won and got in. So it'll be Baltimore and Toronto and San Francisco at the Mets for the wild cards on Tuesday, followed by Boston at Cleveland and Texas against the wild card winner in the AL and the Dodgers at Washington with the Cubs hosting the wild card winner in the NL. Joining us now to discuss all of this and more is Sports Illustrated's baseball editor, Emma Spann. Hi, Emma. Hello. So let's first talk about the Wild Cards first, Baltimore-Toronto. It feels a little bit mad to me. They've been in the playoffs recently, but not to the World Series, which I guess is a big deal in Baltimore-Toronto, of course. But the Mets-Giants, Noah Syndergaard against Madison Bumgarner, that will be fun. 
That should be fun. Although the way baseball tends to go, like that game could very easily end up being like eight six. Yeah, right. Who knows? <laughs> Wait, is that not fun? Is eight six the unfun score? To me, that's oh, the fun score. <laughs> it's just fun in, fun in a different way. Right. Um, yeah, well, no, it could I, be 8-6. Actually... It could be a one nothing game in the seventh, and then the bullpens. Oh, the Giants' bullpen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that could, that could be fun for people who aren't Giants fans. Um, after Actually, I covered the Toronto series last year, and that was a lot of fun. Um, so I, I actually am a little bit more excited about, about that game than, than you guys are. You know, I don't think we'll get another Jose Bautista epic bat flip moment, but... Um, yeah, they, that's a team that has you know some interesting, some, some some fiery personalities and some interesting moments in it. I think. Yeah, the possibility of a benches clearing brawl. Well, is, if they uh, advance, be higher the, in that game. If they advance and face the Rangers, we are the odds of a playoff benches clearing brawl are extremely high. Yes, Roof Ned taking shots left <laughs> and right. So okay, let's go. Let's go to uh, the Mets and the Giants for a second. I would say the Mets ha- are going to have a huge amount of trouble with Baumgartner more than the Giants will with Syndergaard. But I th- I'm trying to recall the stat off the top of my head. There was a time a couple weeks ago where the Giants had were were uh, the last ten leads they had in the ninth inning. They blew five of them, and that was more than the rest of baseball had all, or almost as much as the rest of baseball had. There's like a ninety something percent conversion rate with a nine a ninth inning lead. Uh, the the Giants also have the worst record of the second half after leading in the first half. Does this argue in an Aristotelian way against their very inclusion in the postseason? What I'm trying to say is, as a Mets fan, I don't think they could win the game. But if you could argue against them even being in the game, it's sort of a victory for me. <laughs> yeah, they had, they had a really rough stretch in September with the, with that bullpen. The thing is, um, study after study has shown that how you do in September really has almost no impact on how you do in October. But it wasn't just September, of course. They had our, just a terrible second half in general. Um, two really banged-up teams. The, the thing that gives the Giants a little bit of an edge, I think, is that with Bumgarner going in that game, you may not see the bullpen at all. I mean, he could easily go nine innings. Um, so that, you know, that, for that one game, I think you can kind of paper over that with that starter. And the Mets are just as, almost as banged-up. I mean, you know, I, I think my favorite thing about this Mets season is after they came in with that amazing rotation of young fireballers, the, the only guy who made all of his starts is 43-year-old, 300-pound Bartolo Colon, who was, who was just fine. Um, Syndergaard, obviously, is, is, is an ace, and, and he could easily power them through that game. But I think because Bumgarner is, is matching him, the Giants probably do have the edge there. And I think that's a good segue to talk about some trends this season in baseball. Uh, your Sports Illustrated colleague, Tom Verducci, had a piece about this um, this past week. Home runs up 17% last year, up 15% more this year. And the previous four times, Tom points out, the increases were, you could easily explain them, uh, 29-30, first generations of players after Babe Ruth, 46-47, World War II, 69-70, Lower Mound, 93-94, expansion to Denver and Miami. The only explanation that people seem to be able to come up with is the ball. Um, is it also possible that hitters are just that we are, you know, we are a generation of better hitters, but also a generation of better pitchers that with generation of faster pitchers um, throwing harder increases something. I don't know. Yeah, the, the, the theory I've heard most often from, from people, not just Tom, is, is the ball. I think this, this yeah. really started in the second half last year with the, the new, the new ball, the new Rob Manfred ball. Right. Um, replacing the ceiling ball. Now, there's not that, that hasn't really been proved in a satisfying way. It's still just a theory, but I think it makes the most sense because, as Tom points out, it's so sudden. You know, I think there are better hitters and faster pitchers, and that can certainly be a factor. But you wouldn't expect it to just you know click one season like that. You'd think it would sort of happen gradually. Um, so I, I would bet. I mean, what makes the most logical sense to me is that it is the ball. But they need to do some more studying to really decide if that's the case and if they, you know. Do they want to change it, or is this is this good? I mean, everyone likes home runs. Well, not everyone, but um, home runs are home runs are entertaining. But it has definitely changed the the shape of the game in the last couple of seasons. I would also cite launch angle. Have you seen the stats on that? That the launch angle is up. People uh, with the more uppercut stroke. Well, it's, yeah, it's the idea that the players are tailoring their launch angle. Now that we know about it, and and know what you sort of what the optimal launch angle is. Players like Chris Bryan has said he tried to adjust mm-hmm. his launch angle this year to to have a better season, and it seems to have worked for him. Although when you look at the numbers, 
it's not that different. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's, that could be a factor. But, again, you wouldn't think that would happen sort of overnight. We also have this thing, this weird thing of all these strikeout pitchers. I mean, real power pitchers, Archer and Pineda and guys who are oh, almost as good, actually being terrible pitchers. Like, it <laughs> never made sense that if you touch 200 strikeouts, uh, you should be pretty good. But now there are these guys who are giving up tons of home runs or striking people out. And I think that all somehow factors in. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you know, you, throwing strikes is great unless you know, unless you're not fooling anybody or you're not getting it past anybody, and, and then suddenly it's not so great. Following up on that, you know, more than 7,000 more strikeouts this year than 10 years ago. I mean, these are dramatic changes. I mean, part of that is power pitching. Part of that is management of bullpens. 15,000-plus pitching changes, another record this season, double Verducci notes from 1986. I mean, the basic operations of the game have changed, and there are good reasons for that. And part of it is analytics. Yeah, part of it is, and also there's just this, you know, this flood of of power pitchers um, in the bullpen. I think, as you know, David Ortiz himself was saying in another in an interview he did with with Tom Berducci that you know when he started out in this game there was one Randy Johnson. And now there's, I mean, I think this is a little bit of an overstatement, but he said there's you know, dozens of players who, who throw that hard. Um, obviously, they're not all as good as Randy Johnson, but there is, you know, this, all these relievers. It used to be really unusual to have a reliever who could hit 9,800 miles an hour. Suddenly, it's not that unusual. Um, that's part of it as well. And I think baseball is actually considering whether they need to make some rule changes to, you know, limit the number of pitching changes, because it is a lot. You sit through a game and... You know, there's five more commercial breaks than there used to be while everyone sits around and waits for the new guy to come in. And, um, you know, as a hardcore fan, I'm willing to sit through it, but I guess not everyone is as patient. You know, to me, there are so many ways to speed up the game to eliminate pitching changes. That doesn't seem to make sense. To regulate strategy seems to me counterintuitive, counterproductive. Yeah, I agree. I think you have to let let things play out. And the game has a way of adjusting. I mean, everyone was complaining about shifts last year whether they had to make a rule against shifts but you know players you know the hitters will will figure it out and they'll they'll make adjustments and the, the game will shift back in the other direction a little bit i think you kind of have to let things take their course in that in that regard before you get too involved in trying to legislate it yeah before you legislate it maybe you have the rule banning guys adjusting their batting gloves after not taking a swing that, <laughs> that's the big one all right yeah. let's talk let's talk ortiz that guy was good and not only good he had fun and not only did he have fun, he's good in the big spot. He's the biggest Yankee killer of all time, I think. Uh, do you have a, do you have any personal interaction with David Ortiz that makes you delighted or perhaps nothing, uh, sad? Nothing significant, but I will say, so I, I grew up a Yankees fan. And, uh, and so 2003, I was not the biggest David Ortiz fan. Um, but, you know, not now that I've, you know, that was a long time ago. And I actually edited SI's David Ortiz commemorative issue. And when I got that assignment, I thought, you know, oh, great, because I've been trying to pretend that 2004 never happened. Um, but it was actually in the course of putting that together, I, you know, it's not like I didn't already know that he was good, but I really came to appreciate, you know, how, you know, clutch hitting is one of those things that people can debate back and forth whether it's a real thing. But you look at David Ortiz and like, yeah, that was pretty real. Like, his numbers in the playoffs are just insane. Um, and whether it was, you know, how, how much of that was luck, I don't know, but it was certainly an amazing thing to see. And when you look back on it, as a whole, even more amazing. And, you know, nobody has a bad thing to say about that guy. His, his teammates love him. Um, the fans in Boston just adore him. He's done a lot of charity stuff. He's been just kind to seemingly almost everyone he's run into. Um, so, yeah, I, I actually, you know, took a, took a moment this, this year to really, to really appreciate him in a way that I think I, I didn't quite while he was playing. And he is a, also a player who uh, seems to have overcome the stigma of being identified as a possible user of steroids. And he's talked about it. He talked about it in that interview with Verducci. I don't think his answers were completely convincing, um, basically saying, well, supplements, and then I stopped going to GNC, but we all went to GNC back then. Um, there's no proof because the what these players allegedly tested positive for was never identified. But... I think you have to sort of, do you need to factor that in? If you're a Yankees fan the way we are, maybe you do factor that in. But on, on, the, you know, on, on balance, I think Ortiz has done enough to sort of make me feel like, eh, all right, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt from that era. 
Yeah, that, that test is from 2003. I mean, I th- I, I'm someone who makes a, a distinction between people who used before they had testing and, and players who used after, just because they had absolutely no rules in place to effectively try to control it before then. It was definitely sort of a Wild West thing. Um, baseball was sort of implicitly letting it happen. You know, they didn't really want to deal with it. They, I think there's a lot of you know, teams knew what was going on and didn't do anything. I think to now get all retroactively outraged, you know, not just for Ortiz, but for any, any player back then, I, I can't quite muster that, um, that energy. I do, but I also think, you know, people want to, you know, people point out that he had this test and that's fair. And I'm cynical enough that, like, there's no one whose steroid use would surprise me at this point. I mean, and I, we, I'm not sure I care, know. frankly. Well, that's what I'm saying. And people want to make it like a, it was the equivalent of, say, A Rod. And that's just not the case. I mean, this was a test that he would have appealed had it been a real test, but he never got the chance because this was sort of a supposedly anonymous right. survey test. And because enough players tested positive, they launched the testing and they didn't bother with things like appeals or with announcing what he even tested positive for. Now, there were legal supplements at the time that could have triggered a positive test, so that's certainly possible. I mean, it's, it's worth mentioning. I don't mind when people bring it up, but to me, it's just, you just can't, I, don't, I can't make that much of it. That's just me. Yeah, if he took uh, some performance enhancers in the days when baseball didn't even police against that and uh, doesn't seem to have taken any since and doesn't seem to have substantially elevated his numbers. I mean, it's not a Bond situation where he uh, uh, assaulted the greatest home run figure of all time. I mean, only, only someone looking to tear down a legacy would really latch on to that as important as the other stuff that we can ascertain. I think uh, equally worth mentioning here, though, is whether Ortiz merited the full season-long retirement tour where he received gifts from every stadium. Almost. The Braves gave him nothing. Nothing. Just well, that's because they were tribute. closing up their stadium. They were taking it with them. There was nothing. <laughs> so here's what he got. Giving him Turner here's, Field. Hell. Here's a few of the things he got. He got a chair and some barbecue sauce from the Royals, a cable car bell from the Giants, a bottle of Cabernet from the A's. That's kind of <laughs> snooty. Belt buckle and cowboy boots from the Rangers. A custom surfboard from the Padres. I'm sure he's going to use that a lot. Two parkas from the Blue Jays. Um, a broken the, bullpen uh, the, phone from the Orioles. Broken bullpen on the Astros gave him a Stetson. The White Sox gave him a humidor, not just a humidor though, crafted by former slugger Ron Kittle. <laughs> wow, that's a very specific present. That's yeah, a very generous Marlon description Bay- of Ron Kittle as slugger, <laughs> <laughs> slugger or strikeout yeah, machine. Yeah. The Marlins gave him some uh, cigars. There you go. He had a lot of cigars. Yeah, yeah, a lot of Dominican <laughs> Dominican cigars. Yeah. So, did the question then is Emma? Did David Ortiz deserve a farewell Jeter-like tour? Does anyone deserve a a visiting ballpark tour like this? I'm you know, it, I don't. It didn't. It didn't bother me. It does get to be a little bit much. It was easier on Ortiz's case because he's having such a good season. I mean, the thing that got a little awkward with Jeter, and I say this as someone who, who loved Derek Jeter, but you know, he was playing pretty badly, and the Yankees were out of the playoffs, and so by the end there, it was just like a little bit awkward because he, you know, he clearly would have preferred to be, you know playing better and, and having the Yankees winning. Um, so that got like a little bit, yeah, like a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> I don't know. I look at it the other way where uh, why wouldn't the visiting team bestow gifts upon a guy who ain't going to hurt you? You know, <laughs> it's like grandpa's coming to the park. Here you go. <laughs> You're batting, uh, you know, 82 OPS plus. Whereas with David Ortiz, hey, take these gifts. And then in the bottom of the eighth, why don't you jack one over the left field wall? I just Jeter and Ortiz. This is, the comparison in my mind. And I know that there have been some uh, advanced statistical formulation saying a clutch doesn't exist and possibly as a subset of that, therefore David Ortiz ain't clutch. But it does seem that both of these guys had this quality where they just didn't get extra jacked in the uh, postseason or in big situations. Uh, an even killedness, certainly true with Jeter. And it would seem that it manifested itself different ways with Ortiz. And I don't know if you could really see on guys who aren't clutch. I don't know if you could really see panic or anything like that. Maybe 
maybe it manifests itself uh, with pitchers more. Maybe, you know, I've been hearing a lot of discussion about why is Kershaw, why are David Price, why are these guys worse in the postseason than, than they are in the regular season? And maybe there are actually different explanations for that. You know, with Kershaw, it was really just a couple of uh, bad innings. With Price, it seems more consistent. And people talk about them wanting to be too perfect. So the, if the definition of clutch which I'll concede might not exist. If the definition of clutch is someone who rises to the occasion, maybe it's that they have the sang-froid just not to crumble during the occasion. That certainly seems that seems like an explanation that makes sense. I will say when you look at both Ortiz and Jeter, their postseason numbers, while excellent, are very very similar to their excellent regular season numbers. Regular season numbers um, so you know these are good players who continue to be good in the postseason. Now, granted, you know that's against tougher competition and a lot of pressure that you know could certainly to some people, but it's not like there's some magic thing where it's like, oh, big moment, I'm going to hit more home runs. Um, it seems like that when you're watching it. It's certainly, they provided us with a lot of excellent, tense postseason moments, whether that was because of some inherent quality in their personality or just because they were good hitters. I mean, either way, I, I, you know, the, the result is the same. Emma Spann is the baseball editor for Sports Illustrated. Emma, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. 113 years beyond the Wright brothers' little big flight and 79 years after Amelia Earhart left behind a spirit that taught us to treat barriers the way barriers ought to be treated, there's no earthly reason a person can't go to a big football game in Seattle at 6 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on a Friday night and another big football game in the northwest corner of South Carolina at 8.22 p.m. on a Saturday night. So begins Washington Post college football writer Chuck Culpepper's dispatch about his transcontinental reportorial journey this past weekend. He saw number 10 Washington thrash number seven Stanford 44 to six and then number five Clemson hang on against number three Louisville 42 to 36. Home fans were happy. Chuck was tired. He's in a hotel room in Atlanta. Chuck Culpepper, welcome to hang up and listen. Thanks very much. <laughs> I wrote that at one thirty in the morning, so I'm sorry that there are too many, too many words in it. <laughs> All right, let's talk about the games before we talk about covering college football today. And let's start with uh, what you did this past week. And that was kind of insane. Um, I would have needed like an IV and three days of bed rest um, to get through that. What motivated you to try to cover games on both coasts and how'd you pull it off? People who know me know that I'm always kind of trying to do things like this and that uh, that once that I found out that we had a rare weekend where uh, there were six of the teams in the top 10 who were playing other top 10 teams. And once I saw that one of those games was on a Friday, I was immediately to the airline website to try to figure out if it, it could be done. And, you know, when you're sort of sleeping upright on a plane and you don't know if you're snoring and uh, you hope you're not because you're in public, sort of, and and you're riding along in the week in the dawn, and then the pilot says we're about to enter Minneapolis because that's where I change planes. You're just as exhilarated as you are tired. So, I I think uh, the the exhilaration that you're doing something that doesn't really make any sense overrides the sleep, the need for sleep. I think that in terms of pacing, it would have been better if you had caught the blowout somewhere in between rather than the first game. But uh, Seattle was the site of uh, Washington and Stanford. And uh, it just seems to me, I read a stat that Stanford hasn't played outside the state of California in over a year. And this was a much hyped team who uh, went down hard to the Huskies. That's a good stadium to watch football, though. So as your attention shifted while this game got out of hand, it must have been nice to look around and see all the Pacific Northwest sites. You could make the case that it's the best setting. And they call it the best setting. That's part of their, that's their slogan. But you can make the case that it is the best. I mean, you could argue the Rose Bowl. You could argue some other things, of course. But 
I, th- I think one thing about it is I had the last time I went to a game there, the winning quarterback was Troy Aikman. So it had been a long uh, college, college game. So it'd been a long time. So I think I, I had forgotten how beautiful it is and that there's tailgating on boats. And, uh, and I didn't realize that, you know, they're the, that the boats out there, you know, everybody wants to get a, or get a good position for their boat. And sometimes people complain that their boat position is not good enough. So I love all that stuff. And then, the noise that's in there, which has been mostly absent as they've had this kind of century of dismay where they've lost at least four games each season and, and u- usually six or more. So the noise that they still can create was just so powerful and all full of all the things that college football noise has at its best, you know, a need and, and uh, hunger and um, urgency and all of it. So. I was going to save this for later, but I think this is a good time to bring up what you, you're alluding to here, like noticing that detail. You seem to be covering college football like it's a foreign country. You know, you're seeing these towns and these rituals as an outsider, kind of unpolluted about what we know about sports. I love that you mentioned in your piece the boat tailgating and that you talked to this 27-year-old guy who manages the boat parking and that his title is uh, boat moorage manager. And then you contrasted that with Clemson and the fans cheering insanely as the bus brings the players into the stadium. And you wrote, they do love the bus. And then they make the noise that rings with the humid urgency of the South. The humid urgency of the South. That, that's lovely, Chuck. It's sort of a Martin Luther King echo of the fierce urgency of now grafted onto something far less important than racial justice. Well, that uh, the way that I look at it has, I mean, I've always loved this sport. I grew up with it. I grew up in the South in Virginia and and the humidity is one reason I loved it because when football season was coming, you knew that the humidity was finally going away. You know, and so I think, but when I, I went and lived abroad from 06, mostly till 14, just a, or just a year or two in there where I came back, I think that has made me view the whole thing as what an extreme human oddity it is. You know, only we uh, put 100,000 people in stadiums to watch college students. Only we have all these, you know, odd baubles that we play for like uh, indiana just meet beat michigan state and the winner gets that brass spittoon and then the the players take take turns spitting into it you know only we tailgate like we do i mean uh, british the brits go to horse races and tailgate it's not quite the same thing but you know only we tailgate so elaborately and so since coming back i think i have emphasized all those things of just what a strange, and this is what I love the most about it, what what strange human behavior this is. Other than the uh, quirks of transportation and maybe some of the smaller traditions, you know, in the Pac-12 now, uh, we're talking about mostly urban settings, right? UCLA and USC and Stanford and uh, Cal, that's the Bay Area, and Seattle and Tempe, and Portland's not too far from Eugene. Okay, fine. But we're talking about the difference between blue state football and red state football in the SEC and Clemson. What are the big differences? I think generally, uh, Oregon and Washington accepted here. There's more noise in the in the SEC and more. I think that's the the thing that um, that characterizes it the most for me is that is is you know that that kind of urgent sound uh, that you you hear. You know. I was at the Rose Bowl the week before Stanford and UCLA on that late drive, and there's a good good sound there, but you just don't get the sense that people need it quite so badly. Mm-hmm. As and um, and then and then I think there's a lot of I think a lot of the some of the traditions in the Pac-12 are newer, obviously, than the ones in the SEC. So and I think also there is the uh, sort of the the hidden. It's often hidden from people in the East, that feeling of a anti-West Coast bias, which has long been presumed to exist and probably got its its uh, peak when uh, Alabama won a national title in 79 against with one loss. And USC also had one loss. And, well, they kind of split the national title, but USC had beaten Alabama in Alabama during that season. But, it, you know, but they still split the national title. So I think. 
you know, in the SEC, maybe I get a feeling of a little more entitlement. Uh-huh. Is there any anything in terms of uh, innovation, coaching innovation, uh, the status of the players, um, anything we actually could see? Do you think that if someone was schooled in this, I could put a couple SEC teams in front of them and a couple Pac-12 teams and they'd be able to discern the difference? I'm not sure anymore. I think there was a day when that was true, but I'm not quite sure anymore. You mean if you if you took the colors out of the uniforms yeah. and just yeah mm-hmm. yeah like the cities of the country where you you can drive down a boulevard in one city and every store looks the same on both sides and sometimes you know sometimes I'll be driving down the road in Phoenix and if I don't look at the mountains I'll think wait is this Tampa just for a fleeting moment yeah. I think the the offenses have kind of become a lot so, somewhat the same in that way. But it's because we've demonstrated the right, quote-unquote, right way to do an offense. I mean, you, Alabama can do variations on this, but the high-scoring spread system is just the way, and you can't play an I formation. Right, right. And, you know, I think Alabama 55, Auburn 44 two Novembers ago was maybe the, the utmost signal of that. And yet there's the Big Ten. Michigan beat Wisconsin 14-7 over the weekend. And culturally, it's obviously a very different place, too. I'm not sure I could see Dabo Sweeney go into Wisconsin to be the head coach. Um, so I, 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 is there – I mean, that, that pull of the South is what in many ways characterizes the brand of college football or the ritual of college football that I think we most – are obsessed with or most sort of look at in wonder. I think that's true. I think that's, that's absolutely true. And I think that Michigan 14, Wisconsin seven and eight first downs that Michigan allowed, that really did ring to me as well as kind of a throwback in terms of, Oh, this is what I long expected of the, of the big 10. And of course, then again, if you looked at that Ohio State offense in the in its national title run two two seasons ago, you would think, no, no, we're in a different we're in a different century now. But I think I think you're right. I think it's hard to imagine uh, Wisconsin playing in a certain way in that certain way. But then again, uh, one thing that I guess I've heard about Nebraska fans getting used to is is playing the way they're playing now. So, mm-hmm. but, and does it fit with the weather and all that? Uh, that question does it fit with the November weather and all that question so um so yeah there's still there are remnants there are remnants for sure of what we used to know are you saw two two pretty disparate games in terms of the competitive level there were some other crazy games this weekend that we should probably touch on uh Dabo Sweeney's Clemson holding off Louisville that was pretty nutty Louisville's got that amazing quarterback um NC Clemson's State Florida got State. that amazing quarterback Clemson's also got that amazing quarterback um NC State Florida State um was was uh, decided by a 54-yard field goal by a kicker from North Carolina who then tomahawk chopped his way through the visiting end zone and finally the utterly insane ending of Tennessee and Georgia Georgia scores on a Hail Mary with 10 seconds left, and then right. uh, Tennessee follows it up with uh, its own Hail Mary. Why don't we listen to the clips of the radio calls of those uh, respective universities? Let's start with Tennessee. Ooh. Game's on the line here, 31-28, Georgia. Dobbs out of the shotgun, back to throw. Dobbs drops back, looks, loads up, fires long for the end zone. The pass is going to be caught oh, by Tennessee. Tennessee wins! by Tennessee, Jawan Jennings. Jennings makes the catch in the end zone on the Hail Mary. What a turn of events. If you listen very carefully to that clip, you can hear somebody in the background going, oh my God. And now, <laughs> now for contrast, let, let's listen to the Georgia radio call. Dobbs in the shotgun. Only a three-man rush and not much of one. He's got all day to throw, throws to the end zone. Here it is in the end zone, and it is Caught. I don't believe it. Unbelievable. Caught. Touchdown. Tennessee wins. Legally possessed. (laughs) (laughs) No, I always love to bring up Vince Scully, but I I, I get tired of, of, you know, of someone shouting from behind, Tennessee wins the game. And I get, I just, I would love to hear that, an objective call of that, uh, that touchdown pass. Well, and college football, too, violates, I think, the norms. It reminds me of watching European 
soccer writers, football writers cover their games where particularly from the from smaller countries, there is no pretense of, That's right. of objectivity yeah. in the press box. There is no no cheering in the press box. And I think college football, particularly in the South, is kind of that way. Certainly in the radio booth it is. I think just in the radio booth. I think there's a, a lot of, you know, not much of it. And yeah, you're right. I went to an England-Croatia match once and I couldn't see for a while because the Croatian guys were jumping up and down in front of me, you know, the writers. But um, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, I don't know. It, I think, I wonder if it's what people want. It might be just what people want, um, but when when the Tennessee when that Tennessee call happened, I, I've heard it now. I think six or seven times, and I'm thinking, I'm always thinking, oh, just just cut the mic on the analyst and let the play by play guy finish it. You know, don't get buried by the uh, by the uh, cheering. Right, right, and he'll never have any. Uh, he'll never have to take any guff. But it's unprofessional. No. It's unprofessional to step on your uh, your. Th- commentators call what if uh right. do you believe in miracles and dryden was like i do i do believe in miracles that would be terrible <laughs> right. exactly yeah. exactly chuck you told me that you were basically nomadic at this point without a permanent home how do you map out the season and where are you going next it usually gets mapped out on the sunday or monday before a given week and it, it depends on who who wins the previous week i always I, when i have friends they say are you coming to blah 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 town and i say well that all depends on how your collegians fare on the football field so it's kind of kind of strange but next is college station texas for the uh for tennessee going into texas a&m both unbeaten both top 10 and if texas a&m breaks out to a lead it's in big trouble as we've learned from tennessee you got it you gotta you can't take a big lead on tennessee it's not a good idea are you trying to sort of craft a narrative around the season when you look at the sort of in total, like what you're going to write about this year? For sure. Yeah. You try, you're trying to kind of define the season. I think, you know, one thing that defines the season is that Florida state is gone already, you know, and that's, that's a team that a lot of us thought was going to win the, maybe win the national title. And, um, I think, I think that the, the emergence of Louisville and, and having the most dazzling player in the country play for Louisville is something that, that kind of makes this see. And, and then now the uh, surge of Washington, things that make this season maybe fresher than some. You know, you could go through entire seasons where you're really just talking about Alabama, Ohio State and, and so on. But this is this seems like kind of a almost motley, a little bit eccentric and really interesting season and, and surprising already. Chuck Culpepper covers college football for the Washington Post. Chuck, please keep writing in the literary and beautiful way that you do. And I recommend everybody to go check out Chuck's work online. Thank you so much, Stefan. Thanks, Chuck. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now it is time for After Balls. An American is going to be coaching in the Premier League. Bob Bradley on Monday was named the manager of Swansea City. Captain oh, the Swans. How'd they think the of that one? The Swans. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, he went from Princeton to Major League Soccer to the U.S. national team to Egypt to Norway to France. Bradley's the first American to manage a team in the top tier of the big five European leagues, England, Germany, Italy, Spain, France. He's joining a Welsh team that was founded, Mike, in 1921 as Swansea Town, but changed its name in 1969 when... It became a city. Uh-huh. So, so logical. Is this like Another, Memphis State becoming Memphis to uh, yeah, de-emphasize? Graduated. Yeah, graduated. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, another fun Swans fact. The team played from 1912 to 2005 at the Vetch Field, yeah. which is not named for some Welsh footballer, Mike, but for the legume that grew there before the stadium was built. There's vetch. a legume called a vetch. Vetch. Wow. Yes. I, I knew that word from Scrabble because you can put a K in front of it. Well, lots of, yeah, lots of Mets fans think of their stadium as the kvetch. Yeah. Or it did. Shea, at yeah. least. Yes. Yeah. 
All right, Mike, what's your vetch field? The other day, as one does when one has a nine and a seven-year-old, I was thinking of numbers and doing some math. And 54, what does 54 have going for it? Not as any number related to it, just as a number. I was thinking, if it weren't for nine times six, 54 would kind of stink. Like, 54 is just really undistinctive. That's why it would stink. And I tweeted this because when one has a thought in 2016, it must be tweeted. And uh, our old friend John Hawk pointed out, well, Goose Gossage was 54. I was just going to say that. So then this got me to thinking, okay, what's the worst? And I, and I was looking up some other uh, Hall of Famers, like football Hall of Famers who wore 54. Uh, and they include uh, Randy White and Jim Ringo. So that's a good number for them. What's the worst jersey uniform number across the four major sports or even including boxing and horse racing and ufc because those sports don't have numbers so what do you what would you say has the fewest either hall of famers or great uh players uniform number wise are you limiting it to under number 20 no no all of no them. yeah zero double, to zero to 99 yeah, yeah, yeah zero to 99 the fewest hall of famers i think you have to eliminate one to 20 because one to 30 even because of baseball and basketball. Sure. Yes. Um, I, you know, under 55, it's going to be hard to right. the, the basketball players. It's the over and then, 55. So you yeah. have to go above 60. So the 60 to 80 range wide receivers in the eighties. So you probably got some more hall of famers than offensive linemen or, or defensive linemen. I'm going to say something like 62, 65 something okay 60 two nfl hall of famers in the 60 center jim langer of mm -hmm. the uh dolphins and and vikings and uh charlie trippy famous halfback quarterback so here's what i've come up with here's what i think the answer is you ready Mm -hmm. It's 98. Now, in the Football Hall of Fame, there was one great 98, and that's Mike Ditka. And then the fall-off is precipitous. Let me read uh, the long history of hockey uniform number 98. And of course, Gretzky was 99. So, Hey, what about Tom Harmon at Michigan? I'm going by uh, the pros. Uh, only so, the pros. Right, right, 98 was worn by Brian Lawton, the first U.S. high school player ever taken number, number one in the draft, Wore 98 for two seasons with the Minnesota North Stars before changing to eight. The change helped his game. So after leaving 98, he went from five goals to 18, 21, and 17. That was as good as it got for Lawton, whose NHL playing career ended at age 27. He is the only player ever to wear 98. Baseball uniform numbers. In baseball, not only has 98 never been retired by a team, not in the Hall of Fame, one player according to baseball reference, has ever worn 98. It is Onelki Garcia, who pitched one inning, sorry, 1.1 innings, <laughs> with the LA Dodgers in 2013. And still, with only 1.1 innings pitched, he earned the nickname Spec. I think you have to, maybe that's why that was his nickname, because he just was a Spec <laughs> on the history a of baseball. Speck. The only 98 ever to be worn in a game. And in basketball, not a great player, but a nice reason. So Jason Collins changed to 98 to honor Matthew Shepard, but this was when he came out and was averaging like four points a game. So I'm going mm -hmm. to go with 98 is cumulatively, and Ditka is trying his hardest as the worst uniform across the four mm -hmm. sports. Yeah, it's it's tough because hockey, the wearing a, 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 a jersey number above 30 is a really a recent phenomenon. Sure. Same with, baseball, the, same with the NBA. It used to not even be legal. Right. And yeah. baseball eschewed numbers really above 59. Those were spring training guys. So the high numbers, you know. Yeah. Although 99, yeah. it really kicks in. 99, though. Yeah. Gretzky post changed. post Gretzky. Red Sox, Manny, too. Yeah. 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 Gastineau. Yeah. Changed everything. So, Stefan, what's your vetch field? Well, there was a bigger regular season retirement at Fenway Park on Sunday than that of David Ortiz. Uh, this guy's been part of the Red Sox organization for twice as long. A guy who did his job day in and day out, humble scrapper, without whom watching a game would have been impossible. And that man is Christian Elias, the dude in charge of the manual scoreboard on the Green Monster in left field. 
Elias has changed the numbers and letters on the monster during more than 1,800 games. As Stan Grossfeld noted in a valedictory profile in the Boston Globe last week, that means Elias has spent more games in left field at Fenway Park than Carl Yastrzemski. Elias started working on the scoreboard when he was 19 during college, and he's kept at it until now. He is 44. I met and wrote about Elias myself in 2004. I asked Red Sox co-owner Larry Lucchino whether he'd let me watch Game 2 of the World Series from inside the belly of the beast. He said yes. A Red Sox flack walked me down the left field line right after the National Anthem and threw a door in the monster into the dank space from where Elias worked with an assistant. The room is 90 feet long by 5 feet wide. There are narrow slots through which I watched Manny Ramirez's ass, a room with a distorted view of the game it is. One slot is dedicated to a robotic camera. The scoreboard letters and numbers are 16 by 16 inch three pound metal plates that have been painted over countless times. The lighting consists of a few dangling bare bulbs. There's no bathroom. And while it did smell rather urinous when I visited, (laughs) Elias said in the Globe piece that on that night in 2005, when Manny disappeared with play resuming on the field, the left fielder was not relieving himself inside the wall as legend has it, but looking at a website on Elias's laptop. The signature part of the room inside the wall is its signatures from Hall of Famers to cups of coffee, players and non-players who tour the place, leave their mark. In what might be the best line I've ever written, Mike, I noted that there's no cursive of the Bambino on the wall, but that everyone from Jimmy Pearsall to Tony Gwynn to Wade Boggs has signed there. Elias in the Globe piece noted that Real Cormier wrote something in French. In my piece, I recorded what it was. La vie est belle. Life is beautiful. Elias was a deadpan, funny guy. He let me hang numbers all game long, which was very exciting. I told him I was a Yankees fan. I asked him how the scorekeeper celebrated after the Red Sox beat the Yankees in consecutive extra inning games and route to erasing a three games to none series deficit the previous week. He wouldn't answer. And he wouldn't answer when I asked how that NY got inside the wall. And when I called him back after the game to check some facts, I asked him whether he's a Yankees fan. Quote, I'm just a huge fan of baseball, he said. But I knew, Mike, I was sure of it. When I told anybody about that night, I'd add that the guy who changes the numbers on the Fenway Park scoreboard is definitely a Yankees fan. (laughs) With his retirement looming, Elias finally came clean. I've been a Yankees fan since I was a kid, he told the Globe. There are pictures of me as a one-year-old wearing a Yankees hat. When he was a kid, he said he and his father would watch games in a bar in Somerville that picked up WPIX, Channel 11 in New York, on cable. A lot of the players knew Elias told the Globe. Mostly they got a kick out of it. Everybody took it as fun. It's baseball. It's all in good fun. Don't take it too seriously. So thank you, Christian Elias, for finally confirming my suspicions and for one of my most memorable nights at a baseball stadium. We'll post links to the Globe piece and to my column from the Wall Street Journal. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Please subscribe to Hang Up and Listen in iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Please become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Shane Monahan. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.